Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Heels in the Courtroom. I am Megan Crow, and I'm joined today by Elizabeth McNulty, Liz Lenovey, Erica Slater, and Mary Simon. Today, we're talking about where to file a lawsuit, jurisdiction and venue. And this topic has been top of my mind recently because I have been doing a little personal jurisdiction briefing. I've been working on a case where it's been pending for a couple years in probably three different venues at this point. And the defendant, which is a company that is not U.S.-based, keeps escaping personal jurisdiction in the United States, basically everywhere. And so it's kind of a mass tort issue. And there are a lot of other similarly situated cases. And for those who have been keeping up, there's kind of a hot issue in the courts right now about this. A few years ago, there was Bristol-Myers Squibb. And then more recently, there was a case called Ford that were both Supreme Court cases about the issues of personal jurisdiction in this context. And I kind of got to nerd out a little bit while doing this because I weirdly loved civil procedure in law school, and it was like a logic puzzle to me that just made sense. Probably the only one because that was not my jam on the LSAT. (laughs) And I ended up writing my law school journal note and comment about the Bristol-Myers case that had been coming out just at that same time. And since then, there's just been a lot of kind of movement in this area, and it's pretty interesting to me. But anyway, I was hoping for this discussion today to be a little bit more about the practical aspects of jurisdiction and venues so as not to run the risk of this being a civil procedure lesson. And I think it's a fairly important decision because we all know that where your case is filed, where it gets tried can be a pretty big deal. And it can affect the way that you strategize and litigate cases. We at this firm are obviously, we're plaintiff's lawyers, so it's up to us to make the first decision about where to file a lawsuit. And sometimes you may not have a choice, but sometimes there is a little bit more strategizing involved, and you can make an informed decision as to where you want to file your lawsuit. And so as we all know, there's subject matter jurisdiction consideration first, which is federal court or state court. And then there's the personal jurisdiction venue consideration, which is what state and county do you want your lawsuit to be in? So before you even file your lawsuit, when you're doing your fact gathering, talking to your client, doing research on your claims, I think that one of the things that you should do or is a good idea to do is some jurisdictional research. Maybe this looks like investigating like who the parties are, who has potential liability in this case, the laws in different states, if there is a multi-state dispute. So I'll just kind of throw it out to the group. What kinds of considerations do you take into account when you first get a new client and you're preparing to file a lawsuit for them with respect to jurisdiction and venue? You know, after practicing for several years, this is kind of an automatic response when you're thinking about, you know, like what different jurisdictions can I access? What are the pros and cons of filing it in state court versus federal court if you have an option? If you have that option and you decide state court, you have to obviously, like you mentioned, think about the fact that the defendant may knee-jerk, just remove it anyway. In Missouri, in our practice, we have a pretty strong bias for filing cases in state court, mostly because as practitioners, we have a little bit more flexibility in state court as opposed to the federal rules, which are really strict. It's interesting. I liked the federal rules much more when I was a younger attorney because it was more predictable and I could be like, here's exactly how you do it. And as long as I follow every single rule, I'm doing what I need to do. 
And in state court, since you have a little bit more flexibility, it takes a little bit more style and panache as far as how you put on your case and how you time it out in the agreements that you make. And now that I've been practicing longer, I prefer the flexibility of state court. You know, if we're looking at a personal injury, that's going to be a different analysis than like a product liability case for the most part. You have to know the law. You have to know exactly how citizenship, residency, where the accident happened, how that all affects the venue and jurisdiction laws. And you really need that analysis to be automatic in your head. Once you go through it a couple of times, you'll get those rules down. But it's important, especially early on as a lawyer and learning how to practice, that you take your time and make sure you're doing that right and have someone check your work. So when I have a case come in, I look at all the facts and my knee-jerk reaction is to make a list in my head of what my potential jurisdictions and venues would be. And then think about the pros and cons of filing it in each. Another important distinction in Missouri particularly is for a verdict, it requires nine out of 12 jurors to agree to render a verdict. In federal court and in nearby Illinois, which is just across the river from us, and we practice there as well, it is a unanimous verdict. And that right there might be your deciding factor. So basically, you have to convince more minds in certain jurisdictions in order to get a verdict in your case. And also, when you're looking at venue, of course, we know the bright line rule is for diversity in federal court is if you have diversity across the V, right? So if you're a plaintiff in one state suing a defendant in another state, you need to be creative and be looking at all the facts to determine, do I have other claims in the same state as my plaintiff that would support or destroy diversity jurisdiction? Are those claims viable? Would I want to pursue them? Does it make sense to pursue them to destroy diversity jurisdiction? So that's a real quick and dirty way of saying, just know everything. <laughs> just figure it all out every single time a case comes in. Erica, I thought it was interesting that you pointed out that when you were a younger lawyer, you enjoyed federal court because the very first case that I tried was in federal court. And I didn't really think anything of that positively or negatively. And I got back to the office and everyone was like, oh, just wait till you try your first state case. And I was like, why? I didn't have a negative experience with it. I actually kind of liked knowing exactly what I was supposed to do and when. And it's probably because, you know, I was inexperienced. I had a formula basically to follow and there wasn't really room for creativity, which for my inexperienced self meant less room for panicking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, same. So sometimes if you have negligent acts in multiple different states, there's a potential that that lawsuit could be filed in two different places. Erica, I like that you mentioned the jury being unanimous or needing only nine to reach a verdict. But what are some other considerations that would make you choose one state over another? I know we have a case right now. It hasn't been filed yet. It's a potential client that has come in and it's a wrongful death case. And there was kind of multiple different acts that led up to the event. And one was in Missouri and one was in Connecticut. And one thing that we looked at was Connecticut does not have caps for wrongful death claims and Missouri does. So we would ideally for that like to be in Connecticut, but it's also a balancing test with, you know, the better facts seem to be in Missouri. So, you know, how important is one of those things over the other? 
So I'm thinking about this in terms of some of the MDL, the multi-district litigation that I've helped with in the office, because where we run into this issue about choice of law, oftentimes the statute of limitations, because there are some states that have really strict SOLs that are very harsh on plaintiffs. And I'm thinking of, I don't want to talk out of turn, but if I'm remembering correctly, I think Tennessee might have like a one-year statute of limitations or something. And it's very difficult to bring something within that time frame, especially if you're a plaintiff and let's say you've gotten this product, you don't realize it's defective, it's been a couple of years, you don't quite put all the pieces together. And so, you know, we've had cases where the plaintiff is a citizen in one state, but then had the defective implant put in in another state. And so which state do you pick, where the plaintiff resides or where the device was implanted? And sometimes we look at, well, will one of them preserve the SOL? Is one of them a three-year versus the one-year? And so that's something that we have to consider. And we also, I think it's important to have that conversation with your client if you know that that might be a problem for them. Making sure that they're aware of that earlier, just in the event that you lose that choice of law argument and the case ends up getting dismissed. But that's something that I've had to look at quite a number of times is which law actually applies and is it going to destroy or save our claim? Another thing that comes to my mind, and it's probably an issue in a lot of other states, but definitely in Missouri, we have certain counties and cities that are vastly different from other counties and cities in the states. We have a big rural population in Missouri, but we also have St. Louis and Kansas City, which are just decent sized cities. And so another thing that is a consideration is the jury pool. Will you be in a rural area, a city? Like how big is the county? And I think this is something that we think about when taking cases is where it's going to be. And so my question to the group is, is that a valid thing that we should be looking at? Or are we just stereotyping people for no reason? I think that's really hard. When I'm analyzing a case, the venue it may be pending in is one part of a multi-part consideration. So if I'm looking at the venue and who my clients are and the liability and the causation and the damages, if the damages are really high, and the liability is really egregious, a really strong liability, that's going to make me worry less about the venue. If those things are iffy and the damages are questionable, that's going to make me take the venue question into consideration quite a bit more. I think we're used to mediators and defense attorneys telling us, you know, oh, there's never been a medical malpractice verdict above $20,000 and that county. So good luck. And then we go try the case and whatever happens, happens. But if we've decided to file the case in that venue, it might be one of those cases that are very strong liability and very strong damages in a venue that's never seen a large medical malpractice verdict or, you know, a trucking case verdict or whatever it may be. And we've made that determination. We know that we're happy to be the first. (laughs) So you have to weigh based on your experience your resources, what the rest of your workflow looks like, and all those things go into analyzing the type of cases you take for plaintiffs. Obviously, on the defense side, it's quite a bit different. You really rely on those kinds of facts to advise your client about what their risk is. But you're also analyzing the firm that has the case on file when you're calculating the risk for your client as well. So I think we kind of make those determinations early on when we're deciding whether to go forward with the case as opposed to like sitting there, you know, at the 
end of working up the case and having it resolved and someone being like, well, it's in this county, so we're not going to pay you very much. And it's like, well, yeah, we thought about that two years ago <laughs> when we took the case. So it's absolutely a consideration, but the weight of that consideration is going to change case to case, I think. I also think that as time has gone on, it's become less of the hurdle with the cases that we get, Erica, to your point. You know, four or five years ago, I feel like I would have been more hesitant in a what we would perceive to be a little bit more of a harder venue for our clients than I am now. I think it's trending in a way where my confidence in certain venues is going up a little bit. Like if the damages warrant it, it's a lot easier to lean into the case and not be afraid to file in a certain venue. I do think we owe it to our clients though. And we do, we're very honest with them about the actual venue that it'll be in, what we anticipate from a certain jury pool, given the nature of the case and what have you, but it's never a bar to us going and trying the case. Yeah, I think that's right, Mary. I think it's something that you have to be thinking about venue as far like at the beginning, right at intake and then setting expectations with the client. Because it certainly generally doesn't mean we're not going to take this case, especially if the damage is warranted, but it does go into setting expectations because there is a difference in, you know, filing in a rural county in Missouri versus St. Louis City. Like we all know that this is a very plaintiff friendly venue in the city versus, you know, more rural counties are less plaintiff friendly. And I know that, you know, that does seem like a stereotype, but it is based on like actual data from jury verdicts. So as unfortunate as that is, I think that it is like a real thing that needs to be taken into consideration. Yeah. And that's something that I think about, especially in the medical malpractice sense, when I think about rural hospitals, especially in Missouri, we have a real problem keeping rural hospitals and clinics open. And so that is something that I always have in the back of my mind going into these more rural counties is, is this the only healthcare provider in a hundred mile radius? Is my entire jury pool going to be a patient of this particular clinic? And I know we're going to tell them you can't think about those outside issues of, you know, insurance or anything like that. But they're probably thinking, is this going to shut down my clinic? Is this going to cause my insurance rates to increase? And so that's something you think about. And again, it's not going to stop us from taking a good case, but it is something that it will affect maybe how we present the case. And also the conversations that we have with the client. But I think ultimately, you know, we're doing a bit of stereotyping here. And that's because it is based in reality and experience and some truth there. But I think rural jurors, and I say this coming from a rural area myself, when we talk about rural jurors, they will give awards. They will give plaintiff's verdicts if they think that the case warrants it. And something that really speaks to them is this idea of accountability and responsibility and taking responsibility for things that you've done wrong. And I think that speaks to them. And so if you've got a good case on liability where someone's done something wrong and you can prove it and someone's really hurt as a result, that should not scare you away just because it's in a bad venue. Do you change the way that you litigate the case if you're in a venue that you perceive to be unfavorable? I think that for me, it's spending more time on damages maybe and working up the damages than focusing on liability so much. I'll get that locked in early and then spend more time finding some before and after witnesses and really building up that case of damages if I am in a venue that I perceive will not be very plaintiff friendly. 
I think that that can affect maybe even how you prep your client, what damages to talk about. And we've done the damages episode and how to prep your client for deposition. And I know Amy has talked about bringing out, I think she calls them vignettes, you know, the stories and how to express damages. And that might go into what venue you're in, making sure that whatever story your client is going to tell is going to resonate with the specific jury population that you've got. So that's something that you might be able to keep in mind when you are preparing a case in a different venue than you might otherwise be in. So another aspect that affects jurisdiction is removal. And we kind of mentioned this earlier, but what do you do when a case gets removed from state court to federal court? I know the typical plaintiff lawyer answer is that we'd rather be in state court than federal court. Do you always look for ways to remand it? Do you just go with it? Sometimes you don't have a choice, but sometimes you may. I remember being on the defense side and deciding with the partner I was working for that we were going to remove a case. And I would literally stand over my assistant's shoulder while she filed everything to make sure it was in the perfect right order. And, you know, that every single document, we had like a checklist that was just nuts about what you do when you remove. Because if you don't do it perfectly right, under the rules, then that's a reason to kick it back. Here's my advice. Review those rules. Pay a little bit closer attention. Hold your opposing counsel's feet to the fire and make sure that they're doing everything perfectly right. And yes, at the end of the day, if they procedurally mess something up, they may be able to correct it. But that's something to think about when you are hoping your case isn't remanded. And if you really need to avoid federal court on a case for a certain reason, then the time to be thinking about that is before you file it and being creative about what your claims are and what jurisdictions it will let you access and if you can prevent removal by adding in. So, for example, this comes up in trucking cases quite a bit. If you're suing Say you have an accident happens in the home state of your plaintiff and a semi runs into them. Often that semi will be from an out-of-state company just by the nature of the trucking industry, which means it'd be your one plaintiff suing one trucking company and assuming the driver is out of state as well. That's when you need to analyze your case and see if there's anything about the road design that contributed to the accident or, you know, did the driver have a blind spot because the road was designed a certain way or was the road not graded appropriately or was there some construction going on in the area that wasn't properly, you know, protected or whatever it is. And there's other claims that, you know, may be relevant to the case as well. And that's where you just have to be creative, make sure you're analyzing all your facts if you really need to prevent removal in a case. Erica, coming from the defense side, which was very excited to do removal, it sounds like, mm -hmm. what is snap removal? Well, Megan, I think that I have learned on the plaintiff side stories of learning the hard way about SNAP removal. So quick federal procedure and jurisdiction lesson for you, which I guess is this whole podcast. <laughs> if you sue two defendants and one is out of state and the other one is not, perfect example, you have a car accident with a product liability claim. So you have a car accident in Missouri, the car caught on fire in a low-speed accident and you have a claim against the 
driver who hit them, who is in Missouri, and you have a claim against, let's say, Ford. So if you sue them and file your lawsuit and you sue them at the same time and one of two things happen, first, Ford's counsel who literally monitor filings to be able to do this and have the opportunity, sees that the case is filed before they are served, they pick up that case immediately and enter their appearance and then remove it to federal court because they are the first defendant who is of record in the case. And when they become the defendant of record by getting into the case before you've even served them, then there is diversity of jurisdiction of the defendants who are on record. And they can remove it based on that. The other thing that could happen is you could serve Ford first. It would be by accident and potentially malpractice, I would argue. And they remove the case before the in-state defendant is served, thereby taking advantage of diversity of jurisdiction again. So the way you would have to do this if you were to avoid federal jurisdiction is you would have to file your case against the in-state defendant, the Missouri defendant, serve them, then your case is on record without diversity jurisdiction, and then you add in the non-diverse defendant, Ford. This happens when you're suing companies who are very sophisticated, who have national counsel all over the country. But it's really important if you are a plaintiff's attorney because you had the opportunity to control which jurisdiction you may have wanted to be in. And if you don't do this right, then you have then given them a procedural opportunity to take advantage of. And they have every right to because they just as much as you get to take advantage of the jurisdiction and venue rules to advocate for and put their client in the best position. So it's something that if you do that type of work, you really have to be careful of and know about. And also, if the in-state defendant is someone you don't have a strong claim against or you know like they have state minimum coverage and they're going to end up paying their policy limit and you're going to have them out of the case, I believe without looking. The rule is if the case is pending for a year against the defendants of record and there is no diversity jurisdiction during that time and then you were to settle out or dismiss a defendant that would then create diversity jurisdiction with the remaining defendants, if you're over that year time period, they can no longer remove the case. So you would have to pay attention, be strategic and careful about any defendant that you would dismiss out that may create diversity jurisdiction in the timing of that. So how do you avoid snap removal then? I've only come across this one time, I think two years ago, but I'm forgetting how, and I remember kind of like working within the statute, but I can't remember how it laid out. So how do you avoid it? One way is to do it the way Erica said and just file against the in-state defendant first and then add in the out-of-state defendant. E-filing is where this problem was created because there are like hawks that monitor for big corporations to see if they've been named in lawsuits before anyone gets the opportunity to be served. And I think the rule says that they need to be named and served, which is why this problem has been created. So you can, it will not make clerks very happy, but you can walk through your filing 
and get a summons that way and have them served that same day before the out-of-state defendant has the opportunity to know they've been named in a suit. Meaning you would walk through your filing, get your summons issued, serve your in-state defendant the same day before it hits e-filing. Correct. Yeah. Isn't that silly? Yeah. Like it seems like you're being sneaky, but everyone's just following the rules. The electronic filing has just made it instantaneous. Right. And has, you know, created this problem. Seems a little silly if there's a procedure to avoid it, then you really shouldn't have to like later add in your out-of-state defendant. I think out-of-state corporations kind of taking advantage of maybe some gray area in the way the rule is written, which I do understand is I guess they're right. Maybe it would be nicer if um, the rule is just more clear and so we didn't have to do all this funny business because I don't (laughs) think that the clerks at the courthouses really prefer for you to walk through your paper copy of filings like it's 1995. So So what if a potential case comes in and it looks like it has to be filed in a state where you are not admitted to practice? Do you automatically refer it out? Do you try and get pro hoc vice and get local counsel? What kind of considerations go into that? First, if you're looking at a case in a state where you're not licensed, the first thing you need to research is what that state's laws are, rules are regarding the unauthorized practice of law, UPL. That's the first thing you need to do, because I know that there are certain states that have what I'll call strict liability UPL. So it doesn't matter if you didn't know. It doesn't matter how little or how much you did. You could be putting yourself at risk for some sort of bar complaint, some sort of ethical violation. So that's the first thing you need to do. Second, I think that it's always good to have some sort of local counsel available really just to run the rules by you, just to make sure you've got the statute of limitations dated correctly. You're following all of the rules as far as any you know demand letters or anything like that. And they can also just sort of give you the lay of the land, especially, well, if you do end up filing suit, you're going to need someone who is admitted in that particular jurisdiction. And you'll also need to get pro hocked in yourself. So speaking of local counsel, let's say you're in a state where you actually are admitted. Sometimes you still want local counsel. I am admitted in Illinois to practice because Missouri and Illinois are so close at St. Louis. So we do some practice in Illinois. But I have a case right now that's in Chicago, and we still have local counsel for that Chicago case because even though I'm admitted there, I still am not as familiar with the laws and the rules and the procedure and everything in Chicago. And, you know, just like in any city, there's kind of niche, maybe unspoken practices and rules. And sometimes it's just really beneficial to have local counsel, even if you are admitted in a state. Do you guys have that experience? I have that exact experience. And if you've ever walked into, I think it's called the Daily Center in downtown Chicago, Cook County. I think I was on the defense side, though, the first time I walked into that courthouse. And I was like, whoa, I am not in Missouri anymore. <laughs> and it was. It was a whole different ball game In that particular division, you kind of come in for status every three months. And that made no sense to drive up to, you know, four and a half hours each way every quarter just to report for five minutes on this case, like judge, well, we took this deposition and we're ready to move on to the experts or whatever. It just didn't make sense. So we got local counsel involved. So I think it's a human cost a lot of the time. What Liz said about unauthorized practice of law, you know, you need to know if you as a Missouri attorney can handle and settle with an insurance company pre-suit a case in 
Nebraska or, you know, without having local counsel. But the other consideration too, Megan, you asked about like, do you refer the case out and become the referring attorney or do you handle it yourself and get local counsel? That is completely based on the case. I work on a lot of birth injury cases and through one of our national plaintiff's attorney organization, we have a network of attorneys who specifically handle birth injury cases across the country. You know, there's kind of names that I know from that group in every single state that, you know, if I had a birth injury case in New York, I know what firm I would refer it to or, you know, have a couple names that I would refer it to. But if my client, say, lived in New York, had a baby in New York, involved in a birth injury issue and now live in Missouri. And that's why, you know, they came to me because of their proximity to a Missouri attorney. That might be a case where I handle it as lead attorney and get local counsel to support us in New York. So I think it just depends on the facts and how close you are to the case. And quite frankly, the value too, because if it's our bread and butter, you know, it's birth injury case, we know exactly you know, the experts that we might use and how to work it up, that case is going to be worked up similar no matter where the jurisdiction and venue is. And the experts are going to be all over the country anyway. So it's not like it's going to be a locally specific thing as far as experts. Now, you may need to take a week or so and go up there and depose all the defendants, employees or doctors that you might need to, but that would be worth it in that situation. I had a situation not too long ago. I was handling a case in the middle of Missouri. It was a venue I was unfamiliar with. I'd never had a case there before. I, as the plaintiff's attorney, am from the city on the far eastern side of the state, St. Louis, and the attorney for the defendant was a young female attorney from Kansas City big city on the western side of the state. And we kind of met in the middle for this case. We were in court just for a status hearing. I think we were getting a trial date or something. And the judge kept making comments about how we were big city lawyers and we were unfamiliar with his courtroom and the town. And to be honest, the tone was pretty negative that we were two attorneys who had never been in that venue before fighting in his courtroom. It very much felt like, you know, what are you doing here? And I kind of left there. And one of the first thoughts I had was, should I have gotten a local lawyer to be local counsel, even though it's an in-state case? In some of the more rural venues that we practice in, every now and then I'll get a call from a lawyer and we're chatting about something and somehow the, the case gets brought up. And I say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm actually trying a case out near you pretty soon. And without fail, we have very generous attorneys here in Missouri. But without fail, that lawyer will offer, hey, do you want me to help you come pick a jury? Do you want me to just come and stand by you when you got to argue in front of the judge? I'll just show up just to give you a little bit more street cred out here. Because I think especially in these more rural venues where there aren't as many attorneys, so you're going to see the same faces over and over again, it is maybe a little bit more territorial. And so Having someone who is, you know, on the home team a little bit, that's not a bad thing. And if it's something you can use to your advantage and certainly you make the offer of, hey, if you ever have anything where I'm at, I can scratch your back, you can scratch mine. That's something definitely to take advantage of. And it's also very important that you build connections outside of just your immediate area. That's so true, Liz. And we're involved in the Missouri Association of Trial Attorneys, which is our statewide plaintiff's organization. And I have met a lot of people that I've leaned on through that organization. And sometimes it's because I made a connection with them at a conference or something. Sometimes I just look up the county or the venue that I'm going to be in and look in the member directory and say, who 
practices in this county or lives in this county and is a member of that organization and I'll just cold call them. And that will be our connection that, you know, hey, we're both in this organization together. I found your name on the directory. Can you tell me about the judge? Can you tell me about the opposing counsel or whatever it be? And that's always worked really well. Kind of one last thing about local counsel and kind of to wrap up our topic. If you do have local counsel, what sort of expectations do you have for that relationship? What responsibilities do you rely on them for versus do yourself? I'm going to say it depends because I've had cases before where if I'm having the other attorney play a bigger role, I mean, you know, there might be some sort of arrangement between attorneys on whether it's the fee in the case or if they're only going to handle filing documents and there's just all I do is email something to someone at that law firm anytime I need something filed. That's totally different than me expecting the other attorney to take half the depositions in the case. And that'll be obviously reflected in how much work that you do and what the fee split is and all that stuff. I have found in my experience that when our firm handles a case as local, we usually play a pretty decent role in the case. Then, you know, on the other side, I have worked on cases with local counsel in another state where I have only had that office handle filing. And I've done the briefing and I've looked up the law and I might call them to say, hey, this is how I understand this law to be playing out. Is that generally how it works in your state? Do I have it right? Yes, it is. Great. I've got the stamp of, you know, my comprehension of what's going on in terms of a legal issue before I file something. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining in this discussion. I hope it was helpful and informative in some way. As always, please email us your comments and questions to comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we encourage you to leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. And we'll see you next time. Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth, and Megan would love to hear from you. Send your thoughts to comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law. And check out other legal podcasts in the Simon Law Firm Library. The Jury is Out with John Simon focuses on lifelong learning to elevate your practice. Subscribe today. 